mind if we pray together before I get started? Father, we thank you so much that you are good. We thank you, Lord God, that we can talk about giving generously because you are the original giver. God, you give constantly. Even if we think about us waking up this morning, when we woke up and we opened our eyes, Lord God, there was mercy waiting there for us because you gave it. And so, Father, even right now in this moment, Father, I pray that people wouldn't even be here to hear from Mark Atkinson. I pray that they wouldn't actually hear from me because no one actually needs to hear from me today. But everybody in this room and beyond needs to hear from the Lord God Almighty. So would you speak? Would you have your way? And would you move? In your mighty and precious name we pray. And everyone said? Amen, amen and amen. Once again, it is so good to be with you. My name is Mark Atkinson. I'm a friend of Kuhau family. You know, you know how we do. Um, and as we're getting started, I'm so excited to be able to speak from the topic that you all have for this week, which is we give generously. Um, and if I could add a sub-theme onto that, the sub-theme that I would add is we give generously by going upstream, all right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about this together. Um, we're going to talk about giving generously and how doing that really requires us to go upstream. But first, I'm going to tell you a story in order for us to get started. There's a story that was actually inspired by the Reverend Desmond Tutu, in which there are two men, they go to the riverbank, and it's their day off. It's Memorial Day weekend. It's their day off. They just chilling, right? Chilling out, maxing, relaxing out by the riverbank, just chilling, right? And they're there, and they're excited to just have a day where they can relax. They start casting off their fishing lines, and they start fishing in the riverbank. And as they're fishing, they start to hear something happening upstream in the river. What they start to hear happening upstream in the river is they start to hear some screaming, right? And so they look at each other, and they're puzzled, and they're like, what's going on? There is screaming coming from the river. They look closely, and coming downstream towards them in the river are a bunch of kids that are starting to drown in the river, and they are screaming for their lives. These two gentlemen do what any adult would do. They jump into the river and start pulling kids out, right? They start pulling kids out and hoisting them onto the riverbank over and over and over again, and they do this for 10 minutes. They do this for 20 minutes, grabbing kids, putting them on the riverbank. They do this for 40 minutes, grabbing kids, putting them on the riverbank. They get to an hour and a half, and one of the gentlemen gets fed up. He actually gets out of the river and starts walking upstream. The other guy still has two kids in his arms, and he's trying to get them on the riverbank, and he gets angry and frustrated. He screams to the guy who walks away. He's like, where are you going? The kids are drowning right now. The gentleman who walked away and walked up the riverbank said, I'm going to figure out who's throwing them in. Desmond Tutu's quote is this. At some point, instead of just pulling people out of the river, we need to go upstream and figure out why they're falling in in the first place. 
And today I want to talk about a God who gives justice and mercy. But the fact of the matter is sometimes we can get so caught up in giving mercy that we don't actually get to the root and give justice. Sometimes we can get so caught up in dealing with the symptoms of the issue that we never actually get to the root and solve it. And I think what God is saying to us today is that he wants us to get down to brass tacks, to get down to where it started and give there. And so as we're going to start right now, we're going to start with a scripture. This is Luke 2, 4 through 12. And I'm just going to read this out loud in your hearing. It says simply this. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting to have her firstborn, a son. Uh, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave born to a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Them boys were scared. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I'll say that last part again. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, some of y'all are like, why is he reading us Christmas stories when we're talking about giving generously, right? But the fact of the matter is, if we go back to this text and we really look at what's happening, Joseph is there as a father, and he had to go back to his hometown with his pregnant wife, Mary. They have gone on a journey, a long journey, to get back to their hometown so that they can be counted for in this census. And as they get back, Joseph, as a father, is feeling a ton of anxiety because everywhere he goes, they do not have space for him and his pregnant wife. Every place he goes to, they say, we don't have space. We're sorry. We can't give you a room. We can't even give you a bed. We can't even give you a hallway. You can't stay here. And I can only think that Joseph starts to feel like a failure as a father, that he's here to protect his family and make sure that they're safe, but he can't even find a bed for his baby It's about to be born. And as he's here and as he's doing this, the only place that they can find to have a baby is a barn, a place where the animals laid. Matter of fact, the place where they put Jesus when he was born was literally a feeding trough. It was literally a manger, a place where the animals eat out of. That's where Jesus was placed when he was born. Now, here's the part of the story that starts to get real interesting for me. 
when that happens, simultaneously nearby, there are angels that appear in a field to some regular old shepherds in this field. And they appear to these shepherds and they start to tell them, hey, listen, something just happened that's going to change the course of humanity. Something just happened that is literally going to change history from now on. Something is happening right now, and I don't want you to miss it. So the angels tell these shepherds, listen, the Messiah has just been born. And here's how you're going to know who the Messiah is. Here's how you're going to know who the Lord of glory is. Here's how you are going to know who the creator of the universe is. Go look for the child that is in a place where no child should ever have been. Here's how you're going to know who your Lord and Savior is. Go look for the child that was left out, pushed out, and abandoned. And that's where you'll find the Savior of the universe. Now, if we could just rewind a little bit. Jesus is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. And if I was in Jesus' shoes, I would not have chosen a manger to make my debut in, if I'm real with you. I would have been stunting in a palace, right? But Jesus, in his humility, chooses intentionally to be left out, pushed out, and forgotten in his very debut here on earth. He chooses to identify with those who have been forgotten about. He chooses to identify with those that have been oppressed. He chooses to identify with those who have been pushed out, left out, oppressed, and forgotten. That's how he wanted to be identified as the Messiah. These shepherds know Jesus is who he is because he first, in his inception, identifies with the marginalized. He identifies with those people that nobody else really wants to identify with. He identifies as someone who is forgotten, pushed out, and left out. That's how they know who the Lord of glory is. And I want to say something to you right now. Maybe you've had some moments in your own life where you felt left out where you felt abandoned, where you felt forgotten, where you felt like the status of your life was not fair. I have some good news for you. Your savior felt the same way at his inception. That he identified with you in your most broken moment at the time of his birth. Now, now, here's where the joy in the story comes in. We fast forward a little bit, and if we go down further, we can see in Mark 10, 13 through 16, there, there's a moment where Jesus is grown. He's in his ministry. He's doing his thing. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead, and people are hearing about what he's doing. And he gets so popular at this time that there are a lot of parents who are coming around, and they bring in their kids with them. And as they're bringing their kids with them, the disciples are like, yo, hold up. Like, y'all are getting too pushy over here, right? And they're looking at their show flow. They're looking at the agenda of service. And they're saying, hey, these kids aren't on the show flow. The, these kids are not on the agenda of service. These kids are not on the plans for today. 
and they start to push these kids away. But how many of y'all know Jesus is a little bit gangster? Jesus is a little bit gangster, and I think he has a moment where he sort of blacks out on the disciples. And, and if, I'm, if I'm real with you in this moment, I think Jesus actually has a flashback in this moment. I, I, I think, if I'm able to use my biblical imagination, I think Jesus starts to see kids getting pushed out, getting left out, and getting forgotten. And I think he starts to have a flashback of the story that maybe Joseph told him about when he was born and there was no space for him. I think Jesus starts to get indignant at this point and starts to get frustrated and he starts to rebuke his disciples and say, listen, if you want to get the kingdom of heaven, you got to be like these kids that you're trying to keep from me. And the reason why he says this is because he goes, listen, no kid in my presence is going to feel what I felt when I was born. I have the opportunity right now to go upstream and make sure that these babies don't experience everything that I experienced. He, in that moment, goes upstream and makes sure that these babies do not fall in the river. He makes sure that they don't experience what he experienced. He, he blacks out on his disciples for a second. He rebukes them. These are the future leaders of the church. And he rebukes them and he says, don't you dare keep them from me. Why? Because I know what it feels like. <laughs> Why? Because I never want anybody to feel that again. So what does this have to do with giving? <laughs> What does this have to do with giving generously? I believe one of the best things that you can give to the next generation is making sure that your kids don't have to contend with and fight with the same things that you contended with and you fought with when you were growing up. I think one of the best ways that you can give towards our, our society, towards our community, towards even our church, is making sure that the things that you struggled with, your kids don't have to struggle with it either. What would it look like if the poverty you grew up with, if the mass incarceration you saw when your family members were put in jail, if, if the, the addictions that you saw growing up you intentionally didn't just survive them, but you went back and destroyed what tried to destroy you. The best way that you can give is by going upstream. You wanna give generously? Don't just give money, give of your time, give of your energy, give of your experience and tear down the things that almost tore you down. So we talked about one king and that, that's King Jesus. The fact that Jesus experienced being forgotten, being left out, being pushed out, and he goes upstream when he has the opportunity, and he makes sure that kids in his same situation didn't experience the same thing he experienced. And I, I want to talk about a second king, and, and they call this one the boy king. And in 2 Kings 22 and 23, th there's a, a king by the name of Josiah. And if you know anything about what the name Josiah means, it actually means restorer of worship, right? Josiah's name means restorer 
of worship, and that's what God called him to do. God called him to restore the worship in the land because the Israelites had turned away from God. And as they had turned away from God, they had started to erect these Asherah poles in the land. And what these Asherah poles were, were they were basically monuments to other gods. So basically in the land of God, there were monuments to other false gods and other false deities all throughout the land. And the people were being afflicted because of the sin that was among them. The people were being torn up and destroyed and oppressed because of the sin that was among them. And so Josiah, unfortunately, has to contend with something that he didn't create. The biggest problem that Josiah faces is not a problem that he himself created. It's actually a problem that his daddy and his granddaddy left in the land for him. He has to fight against the things that his parents should have fought against and conquered. He should be stepping into freedom, but instead he's stepping into battle. And because of this, Josiah says, listen, God called me to be a restorer of worship, but I've realized that the only way that I can actually restore worship in the land is I first have to tear down the things that are not of worship to our God. I can't start with songs. I can't start with singing. I actually have to start with war because there are things that are in our land that should not be here and they are afflicting our people. So what does Josiah do? He goes on a tirade, tearing down every monument to a false god in the land. Tearing down every Asherah pole in a land. He tears down the monuments to poverty in the land. He tears down the monuments to demonic forces in the land. He tears down the monuments to the foster care crisis in the land. He tears down the monuments to mass incarceration. He tears down the monuments to educational inequity. He tears down these monuments because he says, in order for us to worship, we must first have a purified land. And here's the thing that I love about these stories. When you read the stories of the kings, it says a little note at the end, whether it's in Chronicles or 2 Kings or 1 Kings, there's a little note at the end of all of them. And it says the king did this and this and this and this and this, but the Asherah poles remained in the land. Or this king did this and this and this and this, but the Asherah poles remained in the land. Or, or this king did that and that and that and that, but the Asherah poles remained in the land. But one of the great things about the story of Josiah is simply this, that at the end of his story, that note wasn't there. At the end of his story, it says that he restored worship in the land. Why? Why did he take this posture? Because Josiah realized that God never says, I don't care about your justice because your, wor your worship is whack. God never says that. God never says, I don't care about your justice because your worship is whack. But what he does say is, I don't care about your worship because your justice is whack. He does say, I don't care about the songs that you're singing because what you've allowed to persist 
in the land is not good, and it's detestable to me. So what does Josiah do? He tears down the things in the land that are detestable to God. And so if we're talking about giving generously, here's really what I want to end with. When we get to the end of your chapter, when your book is written and is finished and is done, when we get to the end of it, what will it say? Will it say that you spent your life tearing down the things that you encountered as a child so that your kids and so that the next generation wouldn't have to encounter them? Or will it say that the Asherah poles remained in the land? I am praying that the Christ-uncentered house of worship is a house through which we say, nah, we're tearing it all down. <laughs> we're we taking it all. <laughs> we're we not leaving anything in the land. But your worship and your generosity first has to start with a war. A war against the things that afflicted you. Your kids shouldn't have to deal with the things you dealt with. They just shouldn't. And so how can we most generously give? How can we most generously give? The most generous thing you can give is a new paradigm of the future. I want you to think about John 3.16 as we close. John 3.16 was simply this. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave, that he what? That he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Even in the scripture that we call the gospel in a nutshell, it describes God as a giver. And so if we want to be like God, we must be willing to give whatever it takes in order to make sure that we can give a new paradigm of the future for our next generation. I'd love if you can stand, if we can pray today. I know that wasn't crazy long, but... Uh, one of my mentors told me, blessed are the brief, for they shall be invited back. <laughs> um, but I do want to take a moment, and I do want to pray. Um, and before we pray, I do want to have a time of remembering. I, I want you to close your eyes, and this may be tough for some of you, and so I want you to have grace with yourself. But I want you to think about the things that you encountered in your life that have been difficult. I want you to think about some of the struggles that you've encountered, maybe societal pressures, maybe some of the things that I described earlier you've lived through in your life. And I want us to have a moment where we go back a little bit. Because sometimes, like an arrow, you have to go back a little bit in order to be released and propelled forward. And so I want you to go back and I want you to think about those things that you may have struggled with in your youth, in your life, that you are saying, God, not this next generation. It, it may have happened to me, just like Jesus did. It may have happened to me, but I won't let it happen to them. I'm going to give generously by going upstream. I, I'm going to get to the root of the problem and I'm going to contribute to fixing what was broken. God, I'm going to take my time and I'm going to break the things 
that were breaking me. I'm going to challenge the things that challenged me. I'm going to kill the things that tried to kill me. I want you to take a moment and just remember. Just remember. And ask yourself, what is God calling you to take apart and destroying in the land? So we can restore worship. And so we can give the best gift that we can actually give to the next generation. I'm going to give you a couple moments and then I'm going to pray over you. What are the things that God is calling you to disrupt? What good trouble is God calling you to get into? I'm going to pray for us really quickly. Father, I, I thank you for this house. <laughs> I thank you for Kuhau. They feel like family already, God. And I also thank you, God, that, man, when you came to earth, you chose to identify with those that are broken. You chose to identify with those that are left out and with those that are forgotten. God, in your very inception, Father, you chose to be just like us. But the thing that I love about you, God, is that you didn't stay there is that when you became of age, when you grew in favor with man and with God, and when you went into your ministry, you intentionally went upstream to make sure that what you encountered, the next generation wouldn't encounter again. That even when it was the people who were close to you, who were pushing away children and saying, nah, not y'all, you said, rebuke, I rebuke you. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them because they've experienced what I've experienced and they will experience it no more. God, would you call us upstream? Would you call us to give so generously of our lives that the future looks different for our kids and for our kids' kids? I pray that you use our generosity in such a way and one of the things that I love, Lord God, is we didn't just talk about giving money, but we talked about giving time and energy and experience and our lives because that's what you gave. When you came to earth, you gave the best gift you can give, and that was you. You gave your whole life. And God, you are looking for us to generously give our whole lives to disrupt the status quo of broken lives, forgotten people, and oppressed communities. So Father, 
we pray that your Holy Spirit power would empower us to challenge that which challenged us, to break that which sought to break us, to kill that which sought to kill us, so that we can say at the end of our lives, God, we did our best, and we tore down, we scratched down, we chipped down every Asherah pole in our community. We did not allow things that are detestable to you and afflictions to your people to continue to exist. Make us that kind of generous. Father, I also pray for those who would want to give their lives to you for the first time. And if that's you, <laughs> we just talked about a God who gave of himself so that you didn't have to live in a status quo of being broken, lost, or forgotten. That God wants to meet you personally today. That God wants to walk with you for the rest of your life and change your destiny in such a way and in such a powerful way that you could change the destinies of others. And so if you're here in this room and you're saying, I want to give my life to that kind of God, I want to live for that kind of God. I'm just going to ask you to gently just raise your hand. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Just gently raise your hand and say, I want to give my life to that kind of God. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. And I'd love if we can make this comfortable by all praying this prayer together. Please repeat after me. Father, I believe that you sent your son to earth as the ultimate gift and sacrifice. I believe that he is the son of God, fully God, and was fully man. And that he paid the ultimate price so that I wouldn't have to. I believe that you are God and I give my life to you. I confess my sins. May they never be a barrier between me and you anymore. And I accept you as Lord and as Savior over my life. We believe if you prayed that prayer with a genuine heart, heaven is having a party. Heaven is going crazy right now. Because scripture says all of heaven rejoices over one soul that comes back. Kuhau, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you. One of the cool things about this is me and my colleague are going to have some time, about 15 minutes, to share with you a practical way to go upstream that your church is actually already involved in, which is really cool. Like, you actually don't have to create something new. Your church is already doing it. We just want you to join it, all right? And so what I'd love is if we could just sing a quick chorus, and then me and my colleague, Melissa Page Bailey, will come up and present some of that to you.
Ain't your worship team good? They're so good. Worship team, thank you so much. We appreciate you guys so much. Um, yeah, you can definitely give them a round of applause. Melissa and I are going to take about 10 minutes because one of the things that I believe in is that when the word is preached, you need to also be given a chance to respond, right? And so some of you are like, all right, like, maybe I need to tear down poverty. How am I going to do that, <laughs> right? Like, like, how am I going to make that happen? Maybe I need to tear down, right, mass incarceration. How am I going to make that happen? And so we actually want to give you some practical steps, once again, that your church is already engaged in to actually tear down some of those systems. So we're, we actually have some slides prepared for you, um, and we're gonna go through those in about 10 minutes. And so one of the things that we are actually presenting to you um, is something called a family advocacy initiative. Now that sounds like a lot, but we are gonna break it down. Basically, there are two tools that we want to present to you. Um, and so if we could go to the next slide. Um, as you know, I just, spoke to you a little bit about going upstream together, right? Like that is core and central to my life. That's core and central to generosity and also the work that we do together. Um, and once again, the quote simply states, instead of just pulling people out of the river, we need to go upstream and figure out why they're falling in. Um, and one of the areas in which we've seen that there are tons of people falling into the river is actually through the foster care system. Um, and so, we're gonna go to the next slide and I'm just gonna show you a couple uh, statistics. And some of y'all are gonna be like, but I thought you were talking about poverty and I thought you were talking about mass incarceration and educational inequity. It's actually all connected, right? So I'm gonna read some stats out to you and I'm, I'm a former teacher, so I'm gonna need some talk back, right? Like I'm, go I'm gonna need y'all to engage with me, okay? Um, and so I'm going to read these stats, and then what I want you to do after I've read the stats, I just want you to talk to the person next to you and, and tell them how it feels hearing these stats, okay? So the first stat that we're going through, going through is this one. Uh, the percentage of human trafficking victims that have spent time in foster care is 70%, all right? Uh, the percentage of males... Uh, incarcerated who have spent time in foster care is 65%, all right? The percentage of women who become pregnant after one year of aging out of foster care is 71%, all right? Um, and the percentage of the homeless population that has spent time in foster care is 50%. So if you see somebody on the street who is homeless, like every, if you count off one, two, one, two, you can literally say that 50% of all of them have spent time in the foster care system. Here's one as a former educator that really breaks my heart. So this is the last one I'll share and then you could talk with your partner about how it makes you feel. Um, only 8% of kids in foster care will graduate high school within four years. Only 8%. So 92% of them are not graduating or are not graduating on time, right? Turn and talk to your partner or somebody near you real quick. How did it make you feel hearing that? Just go ahead, take a minute, just talk about that.
All right. I know I didn't give you a whole lot of time, but I just want a couple people to shout out, just shout out, like, what was the emotion you felt as you heard those? Sad? Heartbroken? Aggravated? Shocked? Angry? Frustrated? Disappointed? Right? Um, I felt all of those feelings, especially as a former educator. I taught foster kids when I was a teacher and when I was a dean. And I just didn't know. I felt uninformed, right? And so we don't just want to drown you in the problem. We also want you to see what the solution is. Um, and here's the stat. Here, here's the stat that gives me hope. In New York City, there are about 6,500 kids in foster care right now. But if we think about the amount of churches that are in New York City, estimates say 6,000 to 8,000 churches in New York City, right? So if you think about those numbers, it's almost a one-to-one -one ratio of one church to one child, right? And it almost seems like this issue was perfectly made for the church to be able to solve. And the thing that I do love about this issue is that it's upstream because if we solve the crisis in foster care, we start to solve human trafficking, we start to solve poverty and homelessness, we start to solve mass incarceration, we start to solve inequities in education and even more beyond that. Because where are the kids coming from? They're coming from the child welfare system. So I'm gonna pass it over to my colleague, uh, Melissa Page Bailey, who y'all know, she's amazing. Can y'all give us some noise? Well, first I wanna say thanks for letting me be here and for Mark, he did an excellent job. And <clears throat> it's so good to see so many familiar faces. Um, so the next slide talks about the toolbox. And in this toolbox, you have Care Portal, which Mark will talk about, and Care Communities, which I will talk about. As he said, your church is already set up. You already have a Care Portal team and Care Community. So um, Mark, talk about Care Portal. Yeah, so I'm gonna really quickly tell you how Care Portal works. Basically, if we could go to the next slide. Basically, Care Portal is an online app and also a website that anyone can go on and use. But specifically on the website, what happens is it, it's, it's a connecting platform that drives actions for kids and families in crisis. All right, what does that mean? It means that if the system is broken and we know it's broken, we wanna keep kids from going into it. So how do we keep kids from going into it? We solve the issues that they're having or the lack of resources that they have before they get thrown into the system. So, for example, Say grandma is taking care of her grandkids and she can't pay the light bill. And because she can't pay the light bill, there's been a case opened with the child welfare office. And they're deciding on whether or not they're going to take these kids from grandma and put them in the child welfare system. What Care Portal allows that caseworker to do instead is instead of separating the family, they can actually write out a request for grandma and put it in the Care Portal. What Care Portal will then do is it will email every church that is a Care Portal church within the radius of grandma and say, listen, she might lose her kids for $100. Can y'all give generously and can a couple of y'all just give maybe $25? If we could get four churches to give $25, we can actually change the trajectory of these kids' lives by keeping them out of the system, right? 
the thing that I love about this is if we're honest, like a lot of us understand poverty, right? Like if the light bill is due, the gas bill is probably due too, right? Uh, but the fact of the matter is what we're hoping is that the church will get to create a meaningful connection with grandma so that you can continue to support her as time goes on. And actually, Carmen has actually done some amazing work like that already with your church. Um, and so has Melissa. So that's how Care Portal works. Okay, in care community, okay, so a care community, you already have one. Carmen leads that, Reuben is part of that, and several other people in your church. But what a care community does is you have uh, the team leader, and that team will go in and they will support a family. And the, the way that they support is not by paying their bills and stuff. Those things can come through Care Portal and making sure that the family has beds or whatever they need or a light bill paid. But with a care community, your team is set up to where you go into the home, you may be a family helper, which means you could bring groceries, you could bring a meal once a week, or you could uh, watch the children while the um, foster parent, adoptive parent, or kinship parent has an appointment. So um, your team already if you'll look at the, the round picture, that's a family that your church already serves. And one of the ways that, that you have served this family is one of your team members has gone to the house, taken food, and instead of taking a meal, the mother how to cook. She's taken the recipe and said, okay, here's how you cook a healthy meal for your family. Care Portal has provided beds because some of those children have autism, and they've provided beds for those children so that they're safe when they're sleeping, so the mother can have strength lifted off of her and some of you, what the bottom picture on the on the right those are nine of my children and some of my grandchildren thank you um, and i was a foster parent for over 20 years i fostered over 200 children i adopted 10 of those children some of you know some of those children some of my children were part of this church and um they, um, I, I was a single parent, and I didn't have a care community, and we didn't even know what a care community was, but we knew that, you know, I knew that I needed help. And um, does this seem really loud? No. It's okay? It seems really loud from here. Um, so had I had a care community, you know, I have one daughter that has said to me recently, you know, I know what a good godly mom is. I don't have a clue what a good father is. Imagine if you have a couple in your church that is on the care community and they spend time with, with a child. They see what a family is. They see what a godly man is. If, if your church is coming in, even if you're not interacting directly with that child, they see from your actions what good godly men and women are and so you can make a difference just by praying for a family just by encouraging a family and just by showing up and that's what the care community will do you'll come in and you'll make differences in children's lives and in parents lives because imagine doing it alone you feel like you're alone you feel like you can't go another day but if you have somebody, you can pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I just can't do this. You've got a whole team that's praying for you, that's bringing a meal to take stress off, that's running somebody to a ball game to take the stress off. And that's what the care community does. So what we're doing today, and, and the next slide tells you what the solution is. The church is the solution. If there's care communities and churches, we fix the problem. Um, so what we're doing is 
is we want you to sign up, and there'll be a sign-up sheet at the table in the foyer when we leave and um, after the service. But if you sign up, you have the opportunity to serve families. You have the opportunity to be on a care portal team or the opportunity to be on the care community or both. And it's not a lot of your time, but your time is well spent and you're stopping the problem where the problem starts, at the root, at people feeling it alone. One statistic I'm gonna give you and then I'm gonna turn it back over to Mark. 50% of foster parents quit fostering within the first year. That's 50%. If they have a care community, statistics show 90% continue fostering past that first year. That's huge. That means they're, they're not overwhelmed all the time. They don't feel like they can't go on anymore. They feel like I'm supported, I'm loved, and I've got a team on my side. Amen. 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 So just to wrap a bow on this, right, Kuhau, at Kuhau, we give generously, right? And one of the ways we do that is by going upstream. Um, and so we would love, we would love for you to sign up at the table in the back to go upstream with us and with the members of your church that are already doing it. That's one of the best ways that we can give generously. So I'm going to pass this over to Pastor Roe. Thank you so much again for having us here.